Yes, the ever-present sound of crickets is an indicator that summer is ending. We've just been hunting them here all week, but they find themselves into all the cracks and crevices, and you just can't get them. And so it could be in the middle of the sermon, we just hear them chirping away here, and I just pray that God gives you the ability to stay tuned to his word, because uh, as, as Christine opened our service by saying, I have every expectation that God wants uh, us to encounter him this morning. I really believe that, that God wants to speak to you. Uh, he wants you to know him better. He wants something good for you. So I just pray for each and every one of you that, that God would give you the, the ears to hear him and the heart to receive the good thing that he has for you today. So yeah, the Hildebrands family, our, our, our vacationing is behind us, which is always a little sad, a little bittersweet um, to kind of shift gears, but now it's kind of mind forward to the fall, and, and I'm excited about what God has in store for us as a church here. But with the summer nearing its end, so is our summer series. Uh, each week through the summer, we've been looking at a different biblical name of God. We know that the Bible contains a bunch of different names that God gives to himself for those that encounter him, give to him. Each one of those names kind of gives us a deeper sense of who God is. And you know, I really think that is the most fundamental question that a person can ask and seek an answer to. Who is God? And there is so much resting on the answer to that question. Who is God? And so as we look at these names of God, we're, we're, we're kind of developing a, a bigger and a better answer to that question. Who is God? And so uh, this Sunday and next Sunday will be kind of the final weeks where we're looking at these names. And what we've been doing over the summer is uh, we've essentially kind of chronologically been going through the Bible starting at the beginning in Genesis and Exodus and in the Old Testament as God gives to himself these names. And what we're finding is that that God's revelation of himself is really a progression through the scriptures. We get to know him better and better as the story moves along. And so till we come to the New Testament, we, we understand in deeper ways who God is as he reveals more of his nature. And so there's a little saying that, you know, if you've gone to Bible school, maybe you've heard it. It says this, the new in the old concealed, the old in the new revealed which is just a way of saying that the Old Testament gives us little hints, little clues of what God would more fully reveal to us as time would go on uh, and, and as he would give more of his word to us in the New Testament. We have these little hints, these little seeds that in time would blossom. For instance, at the beginning of the scriptures, Genesis 1, when God creates the universe, he says, let us make mankind in our image. And that's really strange, kind of a shocking statement, because everywhere else in the Old Testament, God never refers to himself in the plural. God is always singular, except in here he says, let us make God or make mankind in our image. And it just kind of sits there. What in the world does that mean? But as time goes on, as God reveals more of himself and as he gives what we have as the New Testament, the Gospels and the letters to the church. We see this coming into focus, what this means. These seeds kind of grow and blossom. And we find that God reveals himself as a triune God. God is Trinity. And if you were here last week, um, you would have heard Daniel speak a little bit about this, that we believe that God is Father Son and Holy Spirit. This is 
who God has revealed himself to be one God, but one God who exists eternally in three distinct persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, who are all distinct from one another, and yet all one God, one in essence, but three distinct persons. And don't ask me to diagram that on a whiteboard, okay? God, by his very nature, is other. He is distinct. He is different, but this is how he has revealed himself, one and yet three distinct persons, not three different outfits that he wears at different times, like Rusty, when I'm with my wife, I'm a husband, with them, with them kids, I'm a father, when I'm with you, I'm, I'm pastor, kind of three different hats I'm putting on and taking off. God isn't three in that way, where he's one in one setting and the other in another, that God is in his very essence, in his nature, he is one God existing eternally in these three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so as we close this series, what we're doing is we're taking a look at, at this triune God and these different persons that, that together are God uh, and, and a different name that the New Testament gives to the persons of the Godhead. And, and so as, as we look at these three, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, as we close out this sermon series. Essentially, what we're going to see is for God to be Trinity means that God is for us, God is with us, and God is in us. So last week, Daniel took a look at the word Abba. What does it mean that God calls himself Father? And this morning, we're going to take a look at a name that's given to Jesus, God the Son, and it's the name God with us. Do you, do you know what biblical name is God with us? Emmanuel. Emmanuel. Now, you hear the word Emmanuel and you kind of think Christmas time, right? Emmanuel is not a Christmas name. It's given to us in the, Christ, in the, the nativity story, the birth of Jesus, but it is not a Christmas name. It, 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 is, it is a name that really defines God and makes all the difference in our lives 365 days of the year. But it's a name that's given to Jesus Christ in the Gospel of Matthew, in the account of the birth of Jesus. And so let me read it to you. And I know these are familiar words. And forgive me for kind of feeling like we're rushing ahead here uh, into a different season as we read this account. But this is what Matthew records in his Gospel. Matthew chapter 1. Let me read verses 20 to 25. It says, after he, that is Joseph, had considered this an angel of the Lord, I mean, he had considered putting Mary away, right? Not marrying her because he had found her to be pregnant. After he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, and he said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins the name Jesus in Hebrew means the Lord saves. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet when he said, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife, but he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son and he gave him the name Jesus. So there we find that Jesus is given this unique name, 
Emmanuel. It's a name that comes from a prophecy from the prophet Isaiah. 700 years before Jesus is born, there is this prophecy that God would send a child whose name would be Emmanuel. And so when we think of that word, Emmanuel, God with us, I think, especially if we've been around the church a long time and we've heard that a lot, we can kind of make two maybe assumptions about this name. First of all, what this name means is that Jesus is God. Right, God with us. And the second assumption is that the fact that he's with us is good. That his presence with us is a positive thing. Those are two things that we assume, I think, when we hear that name. And the question is, would we be right to assume those two things? Is that really what that name means? And to, and, and to answer those questions, we've got to go back to look at the context of this prophecy, okay? Back in Isaiah chapter 7, where we first encounter this name, and so just to kind of set the scene, this is 700 years before Christ. Uh, Isaiah is a prophet in the, the kingdom of Judah. And Judah has a king named Ahaz. And what's happening right now is a the kingdom of Judah with Ahaz, there's two enemies. There's the, the kingdom of Aram and the kingdom of Israel, the northern ten tribes which had broken away. And those two kings are wanting to come and make war against Judah because Judah is not joining them in this alliance against the big power, which are the Assyrians, the biggest power of the day. And so there is this war that seems imminent where these two nations are coming and threatening the kingdom of Judah. And so uh, God sends Isaiah to deliver this message to the king of Judah, Ahaz. Um, and essentially he says, don't worry, right? These two nations that come against you, they will not defeat you. God will destroy them. This is what he says in Isaiah 4, uh, 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign, King Ahaz, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and we'll call him Emmanuel, and he will be eating curds and honey when he grows enough to reject the wrong and to choose the right. For before this boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. Your enemies will be defeated by the time this child, Emmanuel, is old enough to know the difference between right or wrong, by that time, these kingdoms will be defeated. And that's exactly what happened. Okay? Those two kingdoms were defeated. And so when you look at that, you realize, okay, when Isaiah gave this prophecy, when God gave these words, it, it sounded like this was fulfilled in that lifetime. There, there was an immediate fulfillment. This, this child, Emmanuel, was actually a child given. That word virgin there in the Hebrew is just a word that could be young woman. And so, so most scholars think that this is actually referring to Isaiah's own child. In the next chapter, he gives birth to his wife. He doesn't give birth. His wife gives birth to a child. And uh, so most scholars think that this is a reference to this child that would be born very quickly, which was maybe even the son of Isaiah. So it seems to have this fulfillment already in Isaiah's time. It's clear, it's fulfilled, because this, this child was born, the kingdoms were laid waste. And yet, as you go on in the book of Isaiah, you find that there seems to be a further fulfillment that God has in mind in giving these words. And you often see this in the Old Testament with prophecy, that there seems to be a dual fulfillment, this kind of partial, immediate fulfillment, but also this future complete fulfillment that comes in time. So in Isaiah chapter 9, 
as, as, as he continues delivering these words of God, he again speaks of this child. And you know these words. Again, these are Christmas words. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Everlasting Father, Mighty God, Wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace. Right? His kingdom will be eternal. And, and, and so you have this kind of this juxtaposition. Is this present or is this future? What's going on here? And yet you see that there's, there's some sense in which God is going to do something in the future to fulfill this prophecy that he will send one who will be God with us. And Matthew identifies Jesus as this child. He is the fulfillment of that prophecy centuries before that God would send a child who is Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is Emmanuel. Now, John, the gospel writer, will, will kind of identify Jesus even more clearly. Because John begins his gospel by saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and as you read, it's obvious he's referring to Jesus. Who is this Word who was with God and who is God? This Word is Jesus. He was with God, and he is God. And what John is doing is, here is he's, he's making it very clear that this Jesus, whose story he is about to tell, is none other than God. Jesus is divine. So he'll say in verse 14, John 1, 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The word became flesh. Jesus is the word. And if we understand what it means that Jesus is called the word, this will help us understand what it means that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. What does it mean that Jesus is the word? That's the Greek word logos. What does that mean? What does logos mean? Well, logos... Um, the definition of logos, it is the expression of a thought or an idea. Logos, like a word, right? You have a thought, right? You have a thought in your head, and then when you speak a word, you are communicating the thought. It is the expression of the idea, the expression of the thought. Jesus is the word. Jesus is the expression of God. He is the communication, the manifestation of God. Kind of the difference between a blueprint and, a construction, and, and the constructing of a building. Right, with a blueprint, you have the drawings, you have the ideas, but then you actually express, you manifest the idea by building it. Jesus, as being the Word, is God's expression of Himself. And so this is why it says in verse 3, through Jesus all things were made and without him nothing was made that has been made. Jesus is the builder, right? Jesus is the creator of the universe. Did you know that? You did? Well, that's a smart kid. Jesus, according to John, we'll see according to others, Jesus is 
the creator of the universe. This is what it says in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 17. The Son, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the creator of all that has been created. And so this helps us understand, if you go back to Genesis 1, let us make God in our own image. How did God make? He spoke, right? And God said, let there be light, and there was light. He spoke it into existence. There was the mind of God to create, and then there was the act of God in creating, and he used the word to create. And this, is what, this gives us some insight into what it means for Jesus to be the word. He is the one who creates he is the one who is not only the creator, but as, uh, as the one who is the expression of God, he is revealer. He is the one who reveals to us who God is. Isn't that what John says? If you go back to John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. No one has ever seen God. We've heard about him. Maybe seen him like through a frosted glass, very opaquely, some sort of shadow, where you can kind of make some inferences, but no one has actually ever seen the essence of who God is. He says, except the Son, who has always been with him, who is himself God, in closest relationship with the Father, and has made him known. Jesus is God revealing himself to us. And that's what it said in Colossians 1.15, right? He is the image of the invisible God. It'll say in Colossians 2 verse 9, in him all fullness of, of deity dwells in bodily form. This is what the author of Hebrews would say in, in Hebrews verses, uh, chapter 1 verses 1 to 3. He says, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Did you hear that? The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. So what does it mean that Jesus is the word? It means that Jesus is the ultimate self-expression of God to us. In him, God has revealed to you and to me and to the world who he is. And in doing so, who he isn't. We can know who God is because God has revealed himself. God has shown who he is through his son whom he has sent. Because of this, we can know God intimately and personally. Because we have Jesus, we don't just have to hear about God, but we can hear from God. We can see God we can meet God. 
To hear the words of Jesus is to know the mind of God. To see the life of Jesus is to know the works of God. To see the character of Jesus is to know the character of God. To see the heart of Jesus is to know the heart of God. Who God is and what he is like. We don't have to guess, surmise, conjecture. We know because God has made himself known. Because God wants to be known. Jesus is God revealing himself to us. This helps us understand what Jesus means in, say, John 14, 16. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And, and sometimes you can read that and feel like, that seems a little exclusive. That seems a little arrogant. Don't listen to anyone else. They won't tell you the right way. Just listen to me. Don't go to the competition. They can't lead you up the mountain. You're going to fall off the cliff. No, I, I, it, it's safer if you just stick with me. I'll tell you what God's like. I'll tell you who he is. I'll tell you what God wants. It seems a little exclusive until you understand that Jesus isn't just another prophet trying to give us insight into who God is. Jesus is God's revelation of himself. And so in 1 John chapter 2, this is what John says in um, 1 John 2.23. No one who denies the Son has the Father, but whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Again, it seems to be a very exclusive statement, right? No one who denies the Son has the Father. No one who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. But we understand what John is saying if we understand what it truly means that Jesus is the Word. Jesus is Emmanuel. He is God's sharing of himself. So to reject or to deny God's sharing of himself is to reject or deny God. And many did. And many do. After all, John, going back to John 1 verse 9, he says, The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Right? All these people that, that said they loved God, they wanted to know God, they were worshipers of God, they heard from God, they studied God's word, but then when God's, God actually comes to them, they did not receive him. That would be like, some of you maybe have had a long distance relationship, maybe that's how your relationship began, right? You met someone on uh, christianmingle.com. <laughs> more and more of the weddings I do, that's how, the, I always, tell me your story. And you'd be surprised, well, I was on a dating website. I guess it works, it does work from time to time, right? Hey, whatever works. You know, some relationships, they start with long-distance relationships, just letter writing or, you know, on the phone. You're getting to know someone. Can you imagine if I'm building this relationship with Erica, you know, on the phone, talking all the time, and then one day she shows up at my door and says, here I am. And I say, eh. <laughs> I kind of don't like you. I, I like that person that I talk to on the phone. I don't want you, I'm not really interested in you, but I'm interested in the person I talk to on the phone. You would say, well, that doesn't really make sense, does it? Right? 
Because this person has come so that they can be known. And this is what it means when it says to, to deny Jesus is to deny God, that there is only one way because God has revealed himself in the person of Jesus. So yes, what does it mean that Emmanuel is God with us? Yes, it means that Jesus is none other, but he is God himself. There's that second assumption I alluded to, right? For God to be with us, does, the assumption is that that presence is positive. Well, that's a good thing. God is with us. But if you go back to the context in Isaiah chapter 7 and 8, what you'll find there is that um, it can be good and it can be bad depending on how you receive God. It, God with you can mean salvation, but God with you can mean judgment. And I won't turn there because we don't have time. But he goes on to say, yeah, God will defeat these nations and deliver you. But you know what? God is coming for you too because you have denied him. You've turned your back on him. So Assyria is going to come and it's going to flood you and overwhelm you. Oh, Emmanuel, God with us. So God with you can mean salvation. God with you can mean judgment, depending on how you receive God when he comes to you. And that's what we're supposed to hear when we hear Jesus is God with us, Emmanuel. Because I know we sing it at Christmas and it gives us fuzzies. And it is good news. But it can be bad news. Right? Because we find this later in the Gospel of Luke. Mary and Joseph, they bring little baby Jesus to the temple to be dedicated. He's eight, eight days old. And they put him in the hands of this old priest, Simeon. And Simeon blesses this family. And, but he says this. He says, this child, Jesus is destined to cause the falling and the rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. This Emmanuel is a sign that will cause either the rising or the falling of many because he will reveal people's hearts. Because now that God has sent himself definitively, everybody has a choice. Will you receive him or will you reject him? Jesus is the great divider of all people. He forces you to make a decision. Will you believe and receive or will you deny? He will cause the rising and the falling of many for he is Emmanuel, God with us. And this is just a little insight I, I kind of found cool as I was studying this week. If you go to the end of the Gospel of Luke, you actually see this happen. Jesus is dying on the cross in between two thieves, and one thief looks to him and says, if you really are the Messiah, come on. Come down from the cross and save yourself and save us. Right? He's mocking Jesus. He's professing, you're not really the Messiah. You're a sham. Right? And, but, but then there's the other thief hanging there saying, we're here because of our own sin. This man has done nothing wrong. And then he says to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Lord, have mercy on me. And Jesus says to him, I tell you this very day, you will be with me in paradise. You see that? It brings it to a head. You will either receive or you will reject, but all now have to make a choice because God has fully revealed himself through his son, 
So the most important question is, have I received Jesus? Have I believed upon Jesus? For he is God's expression of God's, who he is, his being. He is God's expression of God's plan to redeem us. So for Jesus to be Emmanuel means, firstly, it means that he perfectly represents God to us. Because Jesus is Emmanuel, we can know God. And that's good news, because there's a lot of people out there searching for God. Who is God? What is God like? We can know. God has shown himself. We can know God. That's what the first thing that Emmanuel means, God with us. He perfectly represents God to us. We can know God. But it means a second thing as well. It also means that God knows us. It also means that Jesus perfectly represents us to God. If you go back to John chapter 1, it says that the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The Word became flesh. You know, John didn't have to use the word flesh. He could have used the word man. Jesus the Word of God became a human being. But he didn't choose the more sanitized version. He chose this really visceral word. He became flesh. And even if you read that Bible and the connotation of the word flesh, what does the word flesh represent? It represents everything that is kind of human, human appetites, human desires, human weaknesses, the flesh. The word became flesh. What, what John is trying to make clear here in choosing that word is Jesus became fully human in all its weakness. And he made his dwelling among us. That word dwelling there literally in the Greek is the word tabernacle. You know, in the, you know, in the Old Testament there was a tabernacle. God wanted to like dwell in a tent and be with his people in a tent so that wherever his people went, they could bring the tabernacle with them. It was portable. It wasn't fancy. It was a tent. It wasn't fancy enough. So, so you, you remember David said, Lord, your tent isn't fancy enough. All the nations around us, they have powerful gods. Gods full of gold, ornate. We want to build you a temple like them. You deserve to live in something ornate for you are God. And he said, I don't want to live in a temple. I want to be in a tabernacle. I want to be among my people so that where my people go, I can be with them. He didn't want a temple. He wanted a tent. And this is the word that John uses here. The word became flesh and he tabernacled among us. The author of Hebrews puts it this way. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 7, 17 and 18. He says, For this reason, Jesus had to be made like them, that's us, fully human in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people because he himself 
suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Well, he says it right there. He had to become fully human in what, what way? Some ways? In every way. He became human in every way. He doesn't just mean his DNA. Well, he had two arms and he had two legs and he had two eyes and two kidneys. He was human in every way. He's not talking about his physical body alone. He's talking about his experience of life. He had, to, he had to experience the full breadth of human experience just as you do. And that's why he didn't come down as a 33-year-old saying, put me on the cross, I'm going to die for your sins. He came as an embryo in a woman's womb. Born someone seemingly insignificant in a little town no one ever heard of. He knew hunger, he knew thirst, he knew pain, he knew isolation, he knew betrayal, he knew what it was like to be understood, he knew loneliness, he knew grief, he knew death. He experienced everything that it is to be human. Not like, you know, the undercover boss, you've seen that show where it's just a day. Let me, let me, let me just take a taste, right? I'm going to leave the palace I'm going to leave being the big shot with the big mahogany desk where I go to the lunchroom and there's like really fancy meats and pastries. And for a day I'm going to go where the people are, where it's hot in there. And they're cooking burgers in Greece. And it's long hours, right? And the customers get angry at you. And I'll go sample that for a day before I go up to the mahogany desk again. That's not... <laughs> John and the author of Hebrews is saying that's not what Jesus has done. Jesus has come to experience the fullness of human experience, including being tempted in every way. Because the author goes on in, in, verse, in chapter 4, verse 14, Therefore, since we have a great high priest, that is Jesus, who has ascended into heaven, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. He has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. You know what that means? That means Jesus is more human than you and me. Because there's times where temptation is so overwhelming that I give in to it. I cannot bear the full weight of it. I sin. And what this is saying is, Jesus knew the full weight because he didn't give in. He knew the full weight of temptation in a way that actually you and I never fully know. In a sense, he is more human in his experience of life. He's embraced it in every way. Why? So that he might be made a perfect savior for us. It's Hebrews 2.10. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Jesus had to be made a perfect savior through his suffering. He was made perfect in two ways. He was made a perfect sacrifice because Jesus was fully human in every way, just as we are. Yet without sin, he could go up onto that cross and he could die for your sin. He could die for my sin. He could be a perfect substitute for us because he was fully human in every way. 
He was made perfect by what he suffered. He was a perfect sacrifice for you and me to bear our sin. Praise God. But he was also a perfect priest through what he suffered in experiencing humanness in every way. A perfect advocate for us. I love the words there. We now have a high priest, folks, who, who experienced grief, who experienced temptation, who sin, who go through loss. Right? We, we now have a high priest, someone who represents us, who advocates for us, who is merciful, who is faithful, and who is empathetic to us. Why? Because he knows. For God, for Jesus to be God with us, that means God knows. I don't know what you're going through, but God knows. I don't know what it's like to go through that, maybe, but God knows because he has come in the person of Jesus and he has become like us in every way so that he could become for us a perfect, merciful, faithful high priest, a perfect interceder and advocate for us before the Father. In Christ, God has come all the way down to us. He has joined us in the pit of all the worst of human experience. God knows us. What difference does that make? What difference does that make? Well... The author of Hebrews said it, will let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. We can know because Jesus is Emmanuel. We can know that we can approach God confidently knowing that whatever we bring, we will receive from God mercy, grace, forgiveness. Why? Because Jesus came and he experienced it all. Jesus knows. And so John will put it this way in John 1.16. Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. I love that. Think of that. In Jesus we have received grace upon grace upon grace. It's a way of describing a continual supply of something that never runs out. You ever... You ever stood underneath a waterfall. And I know if you've lived in Manitoba, we don't know what waterfalls are, right? You go to Rainbow Falls there in Whiteshell and you try to get your head, you just so you can get underneath it because it's like half as tall as you are. That's our big waterfall. Lived in Northern Ontario with some real waterfalls. Remember it's one time on Manitoulin Island, I think it's called the Bridal Veil Falls, just standing under, you ever stood under a waterfall and just the sound and the feeling, it just, it just rushes over you? It's a good feeling just to stand in the flow and it just doesn't stop. What John is saying is that because Jesus is the word who became flesh, he is Emmanuel, we can stand in the waterfall of God's grace. It never runs out. For Jesus is not lacking in any goodness. He has come Fully God and fully man. So just throw up this point on the screen here as we kind of 
bring this to a close. Emmanuel, what does that word mean? It means that Jesus is fully God and fully man at the same time. And in being fully God, he perfectly represents God to us. We can know God. But in being fully man, he perfectly represents us to God. God knows us. Because Jesus is Emmanuel, not lacking in any godness or humanness. And you know, two of the most common errors that we make as Christians is to minimize one or the other. Right? We minimize Jesus' divinity. We, when we picture Jesus, we just picture the little the guy in the robe with the lamb. Gentle. Probably a good guy, but what can he actually do for you? And so we, we maybe don't quite understand the greatness of Jesus because of his divinity. We feel he's close, but we don't sense his bigness. And so we struggle to entrust ourselves to him. We struggle to trust his word. We struggle to obey him because we're afraid of what might happen if we obey him. But what this means is that Jesus is all-powerful and all-wise, worthy of our complete trust and obedience, worthy of our devotion, for he is fully God. Maybe we, we tend at times to minimize his humanity. We just think he's this big, big, powerful being, kind of far away, aloof from me and the little struggles I go through in my own life that maybe nobody else understands. And so we struggle to entrust ourselves to him because we're not sure that he really knows our weakness. We're, we're afraid of being broken. We're afraid of being misunderstood being handled roughly. Because maybe we're used to being misunderstood. From time to time, my wife and I, we have this conversation where normally it's not me sharing my feelings because I have a tough time doing that. But she will, that, that just happened from time to time, but where she may share just some, just some emotional struggle or something. And, um, and I sit there and I go, I have no idea what she's talking about. <laughs> and so I try to give some advice. And she's like, that's terrible advice. <laughs> no, she says it in kinder words than that, right? But like, honestly, I get there. And in marriage, you probably know this in both directions. You're like, I don't know what you're going through. I don't really know what you need. But Jesus does. Jesus is Emmanuel. And so we can entrust ourselves to him. Right? We don't have to hide. We don't have to shy away from him. Jesus, if he is Emmanuel, I can put my full trust in him because he is fully God. He is fully man. He is Emmanuel. John 1.14, the word became flesh and he made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. I love that statement, full of grace and truth. Because he is God, representation of himself to us, he is fully true. But because he is our representation of us to God, he is fully grace. Jesus came 
full of grace and truth. He is our Emmanuel. What difference would that make for you? Just bringing this to a close. We're going to take communion here in a moment. What difference would that make to you that Jesus is God with us, that he is God's perfect revelation of himself to us, and he is the perfect representative of you to God? What difference would that make in your life right now? Maybe it would mean that it might mean that Jesus just deserves more of your devotion. As the one who created you, as the one who keeps your heart beating right now. You know that? He sustains all things by his powerful word. Your heart only beats because he keeps it beating. Maybe if you're honest with your life, you go, Jesus needs to be more like a Lord to me. I need to be more devoted. I need to seek to be more obedient. I need to take God more, take Jesus more seriously. Maybe that's what you need to do. Or maybe, I don't know, maybe you're just kind of dealing with this weakness and with sin and regret and guilt and feeling like you're not enough and feeling like God wouldn't want anything to do with you. Right? Feeling like God wouldn't understand, afraid of what he might say or do if you really fully gave yourself into his hands. Maybe you need to trust in his loving kindness and step into that waterfall of God's grace. Again. Let's pray. We do thank you, Father, that you have not hidden yourself from us. We thank you, Lord, that you you have come all the way in your son, Jesus, by sending him into the world. You have made yourself known We don't have to guess what you're like. You have shown us who you are and invited us to know you. We just thank you, God, that you give us that confidence. And we thank you, Lord, that in sending your son, Jesus, that he embraced all the good, the bad, and the ugly of what it means to be a human being. I thank you, God, that he did not resist any of it, that he did not turn those stones into bread to feed his hunger with his divine power, but he allowed himself to be hungry just as we experience hunger. He allowed himself to get sick. He allowed himself to experience grief, betrayal, loss, abuse, sadness. So that we could know, and even death, so that we could know that we have an advocate in Jesus. Thank you, God, for that confidence that you give us. It doesn't matter where we've come from, what we've done. It doesn't matter what we're going through right now. You know God, and you invite us to come and to bring that to you because you will care for us. And so you invite us. Cast your cares on me, for I care for you. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. So, Lord, I just pray whatever it is that we're carrying right now might... Might we just kind of step into that waterfall of your grace and receive again your mercy and your compassion that just keeps us going, that keeps us following you. 
And so we just thank you, God, that this is who you are. This is who your son is, Emmanuel, God with us. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.